Hi, and welcome to the LEAP podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Akutagawa, your co-host. And I'm Yana, your co-host for the LEAP podcast. Welcome to season three. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we as Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity. Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. We're so pleased to have you here. This is part of our LEAP celebration and Min, it's really nice to have you. I've had the pleasure of hearing you speak in other events and of course, you know, have read about you, the interviews, the books, and it's definitely an honor and a thrill to have you here and to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. No, I always feel like there's too much stuff out there on the video world and in the audio world and it's mortifying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yet I feel like things are still not changing at the pace that I wanted to. So I think that's why we're all out here. I, yeah, I agree. There's a lot of content out there, but I think it's also important that each time something new gets added, I'm going to say to the world. To me, I think it helps to further inform and to add further nuance to what people may have already learned and heard and read and seen. So, Yeah. And also the world is still broken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Jan, would love to have you share something as well, too. Sure. I'm just thrilled, again, because Min is able to join us and for this Leap Celebration event. I think this is super exciting. And her books, Free Food for Millionaires and Pachinko, I mean, they're just sublime, if there's a word to describe her two books that I've read. And it's because she does, she puts her heart and soul her intellect and, you know, this depth of research into those books. And I have to say, from a reader standpoint, I've been so touched by the stories that you've written, Min. And so because of that, we're so thrilled. And we're, we have so many questions for you. I mean, we can spend hours asking about the books that you've written, but there's so much more that you are. So we're so thrilled to have this opportunity. And for our listeners who don't know, for some reason, that... <laughs> Of Min Jin Lee's background. I mean, she has won numerous literary awards and she has done so much in terms of advocacy for Asian Americans, especially around the time of the rise of anti-Asian hate. So we're um, going to be delving into so much Uh, as far as some of the topics that we have here today with you. And as I mentioned, I'm such a huge fan that I'm trying to really like compose myself. So please bear with me. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so honored. I'm really, really honored to be read. I'd like to start with this question, if I can, and preface it by saying something that I read, you, you had shared in an interview that you never saw yourself as a, as a writer, being especially a, a recognized and awarded writer. And I will admit and confess to sharing that kind of thought. It's so rare to see, or I grew up in a time when, you know, I just didn't see a whole lot of Asian Americans, much less Asians of any, you know, from any place, you know, being recognized in the way, you know, you, you've been recognized. And it's really 
not only just a thrill to have you here because of it, but it's just really, to me, I think so notable. And the question then that I want to ask you is, you know, you made a a career pivot, a really big career pivot, and you know, from being a lawyer to being a storyteller, being a writer. What was it like for you, and what went into all of those decisions? I mean, it's it's almost anti Asian in saying that you did that because it was such, it seemed like it was such a huge risk. Oh well, first of all, thank you both for saying such incredibly gracious things. I'm blushing. <laughs> I'm blushing. And I've had so much therapy that I could say thank you rather than trying to strike the affirmation away. So it's taking me 20 years to say thank you. (laughs) And I will leave it at that. I think I share your surprise and also happiness whenever I see Asians and Asian Americans getting any kind of recognition for cultural contribution, professional contribution, for political contribution, social contribution, any kind of cultural capital that's meaningful. I'm always so delighted. Obviously, in Asian countries, it's different. But I think also for women, it's really quite Mm -hmm. rare. And beyond us as objects to be adored or for or to be subjects that create and nurture others to be seen as something or someone as valuable for their thoughts it's really quite a rare thing mm-hmm. i never thought that would be me mm-hmm. <laughs> and certainly i wasn't raised to be that person so the fact that i do get any kind of recognition at all it's always such a surprise. I am very, very grateful. That said, I do think that the attention that I am getting for the things that I believe in are really important. I think that what allows me to keep talking, to keep writing, to keep knocking on doors and to disagree and to be judged, which is very painful. And that's the reason why normal people don't do those things that we're doing. (laughs) We do it because we believe in what we, we believe in change. We believe that things should be different and especially change for the better for the greater good. So to make it clear, if I encourage others to to join us, it's because I really believe that we're not going to make changes if they're just only tokens. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And it's really, it speaks to how much writers like you are so important to, I'm going to say, to the broader Asian, Asian American communities in this particular case. I think you spoke about being willing to be out there and to put yourself out there for criticism and for the trolling. I, I, you know, I think that that's probably also something that, you know, anybody who puts yourself out there in the public sphere, you know, is going to get subjected to. And yet, I think, that's what leadership is about, right? I mean, you know, putting yourself out there because you think there's something more important, something that needs to be done to ensure that the actions, the work, the change that's being created is going to create a better place for all of us, for the greater good too. And and I think that to me really speaks beautifully to, I think, what you were saying about why you do what you do and how you made this change. And would you mind going into just kind of your thought process? I mean, I'm still boggled by, you know, you went from being a lawyer to a writer. 
Well, I think writers are lawyers. Sounds really strange. It's absolutely clear that lawyers are writers. There isn't a lawyer who's not writing. <laughs> but when I say that writers are lawyers, or what I'm also saying is that writers are advocates. Hmm. We are advocating change. So in that sense, the break or the shift or the pivot is not such a radical one. I think leaving a high-paying job at a very young age after professional training is shocking <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> so in that sense, yes, what I did was completely bananas, and I don't encourage everyone to do so. I meet people all the time, like, what in the world were you thinking? And I have to be frank, I wasn't thinking that hard. I didn't know that much because mm -hmm. I was 25. Mm -hmm. It's not like when you're 25 and 26, you're aware that it's going to take you 11 years to write the book that you want to present to the world. Because that's exactly how long it took me. I actually thought that I would sit down and write a book and it would be published and that I would somehow make back my $83,000 a year at the age of 24. And that's how stupid I was. And I think it's kind of sweet that I had this sort of <laughs> optimism. <laughs> And then, of course, I know exactly what it's like to be 48, because that's what it was when I was 48 looking for a teaching job just to get health insurance for my family. Mm -hmm. So, and I tell that story because I think people think it's this kind of lovely, easy path or, and certainly um, a short term of training period. And mm -hmm. for me, it was a very, very long, arduous trial and... Yeah beset with a lot of, just really a lot of humiliation um, mm -hmm. with my peers, with my friends, with my family. And so I think that all this recent stuff that's nice, you know, it's really the past four years that I've been a successful person as a writer, but, and I'm 54. Mm -hmm. So, but a good 25 of those years, I look like an idiot. And <laughs> do I think that I was an idiot? No. But I don't think that it was a sober decision. What made me decide to do it? I really wanted to write books. And I didn't think it was going to be so hard. If I had really understood what I was doing, would I have done it? Probably not. I say that with clarity because when yeah. I meet young people and they say, oh, I really want to you know, quit my job and I have this great job at Google or I, I'm a lawyer and I make $200,000 a year and I'm 26, I think, well how are you going to get health insurance? Mm -hmm. How will you pay the mortgage? How much do you have savings? Like, can you live with less? I mean, I actually ask these questions because I'm a parent. I'm a college mm -hmm. professor and, <laughs> and I want to protect you. Like, I really don't want anyone to ever suffer. Like when I see somebody who doesn't have money to pay for a new coat, it really gets to me. Mm -hmm. It really gets to me. So I don't think it's just like leap and go do things. I actually mm -hmm. think before you leap to, to be sober, to know what you're doing most of the time. Yeah. I love that. Don't be drunk on just optimism alone. <laughs> We've all been there. I I have for sure. <laughs> I, Min, like baby steps. I like baby steps. Yeah. Well, it, your first book, Free Food for Millionaires, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to write the story of Casey Hahn? and her, you know, Wonder Woman bracelets and <laughs> her fabulous hats and just all the different complex characters that are present in that story. You know, uh, thank you for reading Free Food for Millionaires. It is actually my favorite book. I'm working oh. on a 
book that's very important to me right now. It's a very tough book, American Hogwan. But I go back to Free Food for Millionaires for me because that was a much tougher book to write than Pachinko. People are always surprised that I say that. But the book didn't really reflect my personal experiences, although people think I'm from Queens, therefore it must be autobiographical. But it's based on profound research with modern Asian Americans. And getting stories out of modern Asian Americans is actually very difficult. (laughs) So, and I say that because Casey Han really was like so many Asian American women that I met. They were like spitfire and interesting and very smart. They were interested in the world. They had questions about material culture. They were trying to communicate themselves through fashion. And I did not think it was a bad thing. I think that immediately as a feminist, we're often told that material culture is bad, that somehow we have to be more puritanical (laughs) and only care about the important issues. When in fact, Asian American women that I had met really cared about Mm. shoes. (laughs) (laughs) If they really cared about shoes, I would say, tell me about shoes. (laughs) I wanted to understand. And it wasn't about shoes and it wasn't about clothing. It was really about the fact that they wanted to be noticed. And I thought, why aren't you noticed? Because I see you. And I wanted to talk about what I saw. And I realized that fashion and material culture, where you live, how you dress, who you eat with, how Mm. you express yourself wasn't being done mentally. And it wasn't done orally. And it wasn't done culturally. Like we didn't express ourselves through our art We didn't express ourselves through our politics. We weren't getting the recognition that we deserved. And therefore, it became about shoes. And again, I'm not putting down shoes at all. (laughs) Shoes are great. Bags are great. All those things. And yet, what I was really curious about is, what do you want to be known for? Mm. And if they couldn't tell me that, I wanted to understand, what do you care about? And what are you afraid of being judged for? Because I Hmm. think we can be competent. The first line of the book is competence can be a curse. And I think it's fair to say that whether it's true or not, whether it's true or not, the model minority myth has created this idea that we are competent. But are we seen as leaders? Are we seen as innovators? Are we seen as creative individuals who have a mark that they should leave in the world? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think that to me was troubling. So Free Food for Millionaires, that has everything to do with the way we are seen in the world, how I wanted to see Asian Americans and also Mm -hmm. Asian Americans specifically in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a great capture of what, you know, just the complexity of the characters and the layered um, meanings that each of the characters had. So I... Yeah, I no, thank you for that. Um, it's almost as if um, you opened a lens to the modern Asian American experience that we sorely needed because we didn't have that perspective for so long until you. Oh, golly. I think there are lots of Asian American writers, but I think that Free Food for Millionaires is still read with this kind of anthropological, sociological lens. It's taught in a lot of schools. And Mm -hmm. I have people who write to me saying, I read that book every year. And I'm thinking like, wow, it's a long book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But 
I think what they're trying to tell me when they are looking at it as a kind of, these are like quotes, like it's, it's a mm-hmm. Bible for my understanding of my young adult life. Mm-hmm. And I think what they're trying to say is like, they're trying to understand, I have this immigrant background. I might have this working class background. I have this education. I also have these wishes. Also, I don't understand where I fit in into a modern society that has capitalism. Mm-hmm. Free food for millionaires is really about what are your gifts in mm-hmm. light of this economy? Mm-hmm. It's not just about surviving. It's about yeah. who you should be. It's considered, in my categorization of literary criticism, a kunstler roman, mm-hmm. which is a coming-of-age story of an artist. So that's who Casey Hahn is. She's trying to become an artist, but she has no idea that that's what her journey is because she comes from a working class background with extraordinary pressures to be a professional person. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on this path. Mm -hmm. And the free food for millionaires is really an idea that each one of us is a millionaire. Each one of us has extraordinary gifts. We don't even know what they are because we're so busy trying to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. And the expectations that we also need to navigate to expectations from our family, society, um, what it means to be in particular an Asian American woman, you know, like everyone else is telling us how to be rather than us existing and being. Yeah. And also, how do you know who you're supposed to be? Yeah. And also, maybe you're afraid to be who you're who you think you are. Yeah. I mean, it's actually quite terrifying to be yourself when you haven't been yourself for decades and decades. I've heard yeah. grown women, you know, in their 60s, 70s tell mm-hmm. me, oh, I really don't know who I am. And the fear in their face. And I realize, yeah, they have confidence. They've had entire lives lived, but it wasn't always volitional. Mm. That's really quite a thing to understand. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's kind of interesting. Well, I don't know. I got a lot of thoughts going through my head right now based <laughs> on what you just said. And I wish we had way more time because I would love to just have this conversation with you. I mean, I, I mean I'm just on the shoes alone, too. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those. <laughs> I'm also kind of thinking about where we are in society today, right? Especially in workplaces with this push for authenticity and show up as your authentic self or as your full self. And it's been talked about for at least a decade that this is important. I know certainly we talk about it at Leap and that there's a there there is this element of authenticity that is needed if you're going to be effective as a leader, especially now more so than it was before. And yet at the same time, I think I'm just going to say it out loud. I think we live in a society, in a system in which, you know, we're st- we talk about how important authenticity is, but we still have to try to fit ourselves within kind of the conforms um, or the or the confines of of what society wants us to be. And in other words, we're not allowed to be, you know, our our truly our full selves. I mean, as I think about especially the you know the attacks on you know LGBTQ communities right now too, and you know, they're not allowed to be themselves. I mean, they're being, in fact, they're being shoved back into the closet in a way because of all the anti-LGBTQ, you know, legislation that's going on right now. And so I I think that's the reaction that I'm having. And I'm also reacting to what you said about shoes and about competence. Competence is easy because we've been 
trained to do that. Shoes, handbags, I'll even say designer clothing. I realized we could just buy that. If we get to an income where we could just buy it, we could make that up and make ourselves feel better about ourselves and perhaps say, this is who I am. But I think what's harder is what you spoke to is really finding yourself, that creative pursuit, that something outside of what your families expect of you, what society says you are, because as you know, if you're Asian and especially you're a woman, you're supposed to be, you know, a certain way and look a certain way and behave a certain way and engage in certain ways. That's what I'm I'm kind of reacting to and and really feeling as you were talking, you know, the both of you were talking. And so I wanted to just share that. (laughs) Well, I think what you're sharing is so important for leadership because I think that when our hearts are crying out for authenticity, I mean, we know when you meet somebody and that person seems real to us, why? There's something about who they are and what they say and the way they live their lives in which you can eventually measure, do they really um, do what they say they're going to do? There are a lot of good talkers in the world (laughs) and there are a lot of good looking people in the world, but then are they doing what they say they're going to do? And that actually takes time. Mm -hmm. So the authenticity also comes from a real space of need. Because we're being lied to so much. There's so many lies that we're being told. And now we're even being told that there's going to be synthetic versions of ourselves, synthetic versions of the work that we do, and somehow that that's going to be okay. And capitalism says, and I'm not against capitalism. I'm really not. I mean, I've studied too much history to know what it means, the practice of communism and the practice of socialism. Very often, it's just another power play. Mm -hmm. So if capitalism is what we have, what kind of capitalism will we have, right? So, and then, but this constant need to like cut costs, the constant need to present a narrative, right? Because allegedly we're all storytellers now. <laughs> so what is the narrative of our company? What is the narrative of who I am and my organization, right? Mm-hmm. Is it authenticity? And of course not. Of course it can't be because if you really said everything that you truly felt, you'd probably be a jerk. Mm. <laughs> if you're just, ex- mm-hmm. I mean, if you're exhausted, if you're exhausted, mm-hmm. if you don't have much time, if you don't have much resources, very often that state of mind will produce a kind of negative mm-hmm. thought pattern. And in that sense, if you walked around saying those things, you would never get hired. <laughs> you would never keep your job. So this idea for authenticity and truth-telling, it's so deeply appealing because our hearts are saying, yes, yes, I want to know the truth. (laughs) And yet we're thinking, can we really function in a world in which we don't have manners, right? Hmm. I mean, so, yeah, and I'm going to bring this up because look at... (laughs) Look at a certain president, right? And and I think some of the appeal of it of this person was that he was seen as a truth teller. He just said whatever was on his mind. Yet there's, I think there is a degree of social nicety that I think more people want and perhaps you know expect. So it's sorry to interrupt there, but I I wanted to just jump no, in. No, I, I think what you're saying is really true because I think we can we were so starved for authenticity and truth that some of us confuse narcissism for truth, mm. right? The absence of a filter, an uncontrolled, mm-hmm. unbridled id as truth. Mm. 
And I think that needs to be recognized, but it comes from a real space of, gosh, like, I really wish a politician would tell the truth. Oh, he's not a politician, and therefore, whatever he's saying, he's okay. (laughs) And I think that, again, we have to have the space of, this person said this thing. Did that person do the thing that they said? And that actually takes time. So I do think experience in leadership, experience um, in terms of just any relationship matters very, very deeply. And I say this as somebody who taught, who has learned through Mm. teaching how to speak. So Mm. when I speak, I think a great deal about what I say. I really try to mean what I say. And also I think that my life has to be um, reflective of what I say. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't think I really should talk because I don't really like to talk. <laughs> and whenever you see me talking, I want you to know that um, I had to go through quite a lot to say what I had to say. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of evidence for my biography in which I couldn't say the things that I needed to say. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when I listen to people talking and when they're talking very beautifully, I know the art of rhetoric. I understand it quite well. Mm. And then I always go, okay, so then what happens now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is mm-hmm. there going to be follow through? Yeah. What will the execution be like yeah. on the ideas that you have? And I'm paying attention. And going back to earlier, Linda, you had said something very smart about trolling. You know, it's not just trolling that I worry about because trolling is obviously hurtful and mean. But, you know, that comes with just being a public person. What I really care about is when other people just want to disagree Mm -hmm. because they want to be in the conversation. And I kind of think, well, how does that help our eventual objective? So I don't think it's just about, I mean, I wonder what you guys think about this. It's not just about being nice Mm -hmm. and it's not just about having manners, which is what I said earlier. It's not just about having manners. We need to have rules of engagement Mm -hmm. We need to have rules Mm -hmm. of procedure in which we say, Linda said this, and she did exactly what she said she was going to do. Jan said this, and this is what she did. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we know that they're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And there should be a kind of scientific methodology for our behavior. And as a matter of fact, whether we say it explicitly or implicitly, it's always going on in every committee meeting. Mm-hmm. It's going on at every single organization. We are mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, can I rely on her? Mm-hmm. Can I believe him, what he says? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and can I give this project to this person because mm-hmm. that person will do what they say they're going to do? Or mm-hmm. is that person just fun to be with? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. charisma is also relevant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, there are these biases that we hold about people just based on how they look, as you were saying, like someone who looks good and, and speaks well, you're like, okay, I, I'm on board. But then when you when you truly listen, that's when you uncover, okay, this person is actually kind of full of BS. <laughs> it, you know, it, but that's the thing. It's the art of listening that helps you to get to that layer of like truth about the other person. I mean, speaking about truth, we have a question for you about Pachinko and everything that you did to research the book or the audience members who don't know everything that went into you crafting Pachinko. Can you share with us what it was like to conceptualize the book and to develop it, publish it? Oh, it just took forever because (laughs) I mean, it took forever. I can't. And it's so funny. I recently got a very, very nice recognition from Korea. And Mm -hmm. this Korean critic said to me, 
only an American could have written this book. And I said, why? Hmm. <laughs> and she said, well, because a Korean would have understood how hard this is. Like, mm-hmm. she's basically saying, like, you're so dumb. You took it on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's. And you know what? She's right. She's right. I was so dumb. I took it on. So I was 19 when I heard about the Korean Japanese people, like what was going on with them structurally. And I thought, oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Because I really identified as an immigrant in America and as an Asian American. I wasn't really thinking about what it was like to be an Asian in another country. To be yeah. an overseas Chinese person, to be an overseas Japanese person, let's say in Peru, like they have a very, very distinct experience than an Asian American. So, and I wasn't thinking about it because I was 19 and thinking mostly about boys. I, so, <laughs> <laughs> why is my boyfriend such a jerk? Like that's what I was thinking when I was 19. <laughs> wasn't that deep. After I learned about it, I didn't think that much about it. I didn't think I was going to be a writer. I was writing and publishing in high school and in college, but I didn't think that was a real job. And I didn't know anybody Mm. who did that. So then I went to law school. And then when I quit being a lawyer, I decided, oh, I know. I'm going to write that book about the Korean Japanese Mm. people because it's important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I really wanted to be respectable. And I I want to confess that. I want to confess that because it's a terrible, terrible reason to write a book. (laughs) So... I sat there because I'm competent and I wanted respectability. (laughs) I actually wrote a manuscript called Motherland, Hmm. and it was fairly true, but it was a terrible novel. And it didn't work because I didn't have the skill set to write something interesting or good. Hmm. But I did write a book. (laughs) I'm just so glad it wasn't published (laughs) because I wouldn't be here right now. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, a terrible writer. (laughs) (laughs) And then and I wrote another book. I wrote Free for Millionaires eventually, which got published in tw- 2007. So mm-hmm. that's 12 years after I quit being a lawyer, I published my first novel. I sold it mm-hmm. after 11 years and I published 12 years after I quit being a lawyer. That's how long it took me to learn how to write the omniscient narrative, which is when you have this sort of 19th century voice. And most people don't do it anymore because it's not considered fashionable. My <laughs> husband got a job in Japan and my husband is half Japanese. So we went there because we needed the money, frankly, and mm. they were going to pay for our son's school. So we went there and I was like, I'm going to work on that book again, that terrible book that I wrote. <laughs> and I started doing all this research and I realized that I really was so in my head rather mm. than in my heart about the subject that I wasn't open to the contradictions. Like the Korean mm. Japanese people we're not saying, oh, I want to go back to Korea or, or, or yeah. I hate the Japanese. It was, it was so much more complex. They're like, no, yeah. I am a Japanese person. And I'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or I've never felt discrimination. And then I realized like, I had to allow all the different kinds of people that I met to make me realize how small my thinking was. So I ended up throwing that book away and I started again. And that's when Sanja was created. So I have an entire mm-hmm. book in which Sanja does not exist. Wow. So that's how different my approach was for wow. that book versus the uh, the current manifestation of Pachinko, mm-hmm. which I will never rewrite. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, what happens, Min, when you have something that you've written and you're like, this, I'm, I'm not going to do anything with this. Do you hit the delete button or like, do you do anything with that? Is there any evidence left? 
Yeah, there's lots of evidence. I mean, I have so many manuscripts. <laughs> like, I have so many manuscripts. I have boxes and boxes of manuscripts. Wow. And even short stories. Like, I'll have drafts and drafts and drafts. And I'm 54, mm-hmm. so I work on paper. Yeah. I Obviously, I write and type everything. <laughs> but when I rewrite, I, I use a lot of paper. So I actually keep stacks of things. But some things I'll just throw away because it's so bad sometimes. Because wow. I hope no one, you know, looks at how bad some of these things I've written. Mm-hmm. we would never know so i will say i like to write but i am a terrible start from scratch writer and to yon's question how long does it take you to actually like once you decide i'm going to start writing something how long does it take to actually start writing i like this question because very often people think i'm a very slow writer i'm actually a very very fast writer i'm a very slow thinker and i do tons and tons of research because when I start to think about something, I, I want to understand it. And I think that a lot of my anxieties and insecurities are very helpful because by the time I understand something, I really know. Like, it's very hard for you to knock me because I'm going like, no, 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 here's the evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here's a footnote. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think by the time I get to that space, I feel so certain about my characters that I'm very quick. So when I start To answer your question, for example, I just edited the Best American Short Stories in its 105-year history for Best American Short Stories. I've had exactly three Asian-American guest editors. It's really shocking. It's really shocking. And I say it not to pump myself up. As a matter of fact, I say it because I'm outraged that we are not considered culturally relevant and important Mm -hmm. enough to say this is culture. Not just Asian American, mm-hmm. best American short stories. Mm-hmm. So the other two were Salman Rushdie and Amy Tan, mm-hmm. and I'm the most wow. recent incarnation. So because I knew that when I was writing the introduction, I felt a kind of gravity. I was like, oh gosh, like maybe another Asian American woman will never be given the chance again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I better do this right. And I and I think about that quite a lot. I don't know how other people perceive it, but whenever I'm a a new person, I think. My job here to do my work well is to do my work well and also to make space for other Asian Americans to be included in this space. I really loathe tokenism. I Mm -hmm. loathe it. It is the product of a colonized mentality. (laughs) Like we were, we will never, ever, ever change anything until we make space for many, many people like us. And for us to have a multiplicity of opinion and not just opinion, personalities. Like we should have all these things. Mm -hmm. But going back to your question about writing, when I did the introduction, I was really convinced that I wanted to do something different. So I did like way too much research for what the project required. And by the time I did, I think several months of research, I gave myself two weeks to write this thing. And I really didn't need the two weeks, but Mm -hmm. I did because I thought, okay, I'm embodied in my race and my ethnicity, my class and my education. What do I have to say about the best American short story? And so I wrote about what it means to be an outsider, what it means not to Mm -hmm. be a winner. And then I wrote this very, very long, long (laughs) essay, (laughs) 6,500 words. And I was taking the culture to task for not thinking about those who are outside. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I wrote it. It took me two weeks. It it could have taken me two days. I could have written 6,500 words in two days. But then it took me three months of research, two Mm -hmm. weeks of writing, 
And from start to finish, one thing I will say, Linda, as a writer, as a fellow writer, is that I just really believe in allowing yourself to write something terrible. My first couple of drafts, it's not going to be very good. Like, I'm not going to be very proud to show it to you. But by the time I'm done, I feel really happy because I I really like revising. So once Mm -hmm. I have something terrible on a page, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know what? I have 4,000 words. 400 are pretty good. (laughs) 600 words are going to have to go. That's okay. Because then I sort of have a body. I kind of know what I'm doing. And I don't mind getting rid of 3,600 words because Mm. I believe that we're all infinite. And I think that's a very philosophically important thing to believe. I believe Mm. that I have infinite number of words. So whether I say them or I write them, I believe them or I could hear them, I, I know that it exists. And therefore... I don't panic about, oh, is that the last thing that I'm going to do? I don't worry about that. That's also important. And I will say this to Linda. I don't think you should walk around ever saying that you're terrible at anything. And I'm sure it's not true. I mean, you couldn't be who you are if you were terrible at it. I mean, I think being a leader requires us to be able to take our ideas and to communicate them in prose as well as in speech. And I'm sure you're very good at what you do. (laughs) And I say that as a kind of... (laughs) I think this is a professor, as a college professor, <laughs> <laughs> is that you need to be your best friend. Your yeah, inner writer really needs that loving, gentle voice to say, I believe in you. I trust you. You're going to come through. And I, I really do have that in my head. And I want my students, I want everybody who's out there doing important work to have that best friend because you need it. Like the best friend that you probably are to a thousand people in your life, Linda, like I want that to be for you. I wasn't expecting that, but thank you so much for that. And, you know, fortunately, I also have, other than my own selves, I have other friends that will say the same thing too. And I, and I will say that Jan is one of them too. So, <laughs> you know, it's very weird, but I think that this whole idea of permissiveness mm-hmm. and gentleness with ourselves, because I think women of color, we serve and nurture so many people. Oh my gosh, if we could only get the recognition, all of us would be billionaires. (laughs) (laughs) And I often think, what would it mean if we gave ourselves that light? What would it mean Mm -hmm. to give ourselves that nourishment? What would happen? And I think the world would be better. I agree. It takes acknowledging that and then takes practice, man. It's like, you know, if we're not, we weren't raised that way, right? I think, you know, you were mentioning 20 years of therapy or however many years of therapy. I think that's the other kind of key too is the reflection, self-reflection, getting some support outside of your own head and being in your head. I think that absolutely helps to shed that light. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so true. Yeah. You know. Can I want to maybe build on what you were just saying um, right now, and and I guess I'll just say it most simply. You know, you said about you know you just absolutely loathe tokenism, and what I've read in the literary field is there's been a lot of controversy about you know people not from within communities writing about communities that they personally don't have any real ex- lived experience in. Mm-hmm. So. On that note, what's your perspective on who should be able to tell our stories? Mm-hmm. I like this question. I mean, you're kind of talking a little bit about cultural appropriation. Yeah. It's a real hot yeah. button topic. And it doesn't scare me at all because 
I really believe in freedom of expression. I believe I'm an artist. And I believe that even if you're not an artist, you have the right to really be thoughtful about any subject and you should be able to ask questions. As for who has the right to tell these stories, I think this question is kind of wrong <laughs> because if only the person who had the right to tell the stories were telling the stories, then would all the stories be told? Yeah. Right? So like then, if you think about any journalist. Mm -hmm. So if we wanted to shed, let's say, light on pockets of the world which nobody cares about, like let's say, for example, like disability rights. So few people are focused on disability rights. So does a, a journalist with disability have the right to tell that story? And I have to say, no, mm -hmm. I think, no, we need to have more people thinking about these things. Will that journalist with, without a disability understand everything? Not necessarily. <laughs> and I think this is where we have to say, if you are going to write about things that you don't know much about, you better do the work. You better have the research. And also, <laughs> I don't want to say it in a threatening way. I want you to be more thoughtful and to be humble in a position of trying to tell that story. So I'm not Korean Japanese. I am Korean. I am an immigrant. Not the same thing. It's not. Mm -hmm. So I can say I'm an immigrant and I'm Korean and therefore have the right to tell the story. It's like, but I would have to say, no, I don't think I have that sort of inborn right to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Have I done the work? Yes. Do I know more about this subject than some people who teach it? Yes. Now I know that. <laughs> I know it because they've been they've told me that. It's taught in so many history classes with Korean Japanese culture. And also, if someone wanted to criticize me on it, they have the right to do so. So, and I think that has yeah. to be a position of humility like I don't know. I want to know. This is what I want to say. Is that right? Is that wrong? Uh, and I think we need to have that space of like humble dialogue. Again, I want to go mm -hmm. back to this idea of what are the rules of engagement in which mm -hmm. you and I can understand something better. So the right to tell these stories, golly, I mean, most of the history in Western literature, I don't even mean literature, like let's say studies in civilization in the West, mm -hmm. the people who wrote about Asia were not Asian. <laughs> If it wasn't mm -hmm. English, some of the things that were written are completely insane. I have read some of these older books and I'm going like, really? You needed to civilize me? Okay. <laughs> but my people were savages? Okay. It's a 5,000 year history, but okay. We invented the printing press, but okay. <laughs> Clearly we don't know anything. So, but I think I'm still having a dialogue with that text. Right. Was that person wrong to write about it? Mm -hmm. No, that person was wrong in what they said. Yes. So again, I really would like it if we could be more open to allow people to have these questions, to be able to do the work and also to be mm -hmm. criticized and also to be affirmed if it's correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So, man, we have a few questions from our fans, um, if we could ask you a few that are coming up. <laughs> I just want to make sure we capture these questions here. Okay, so the first is, um, what about a, can you tell us about a time when you were told no or hit a huge barrier as it relates to writing? And what did it feel like and how did you overcome it? Oh, well, I've been told no for most of my career. Mm -hmm. So, golly, I'm like an expert on no. I think that it's discouraging. 
it's really heartbreaking. Every rejection yeah. is just awful. And I've been in situations where I needed to get a teaching gig just to get health insurance, and I yeah. couldn't get it. And people said I was unqualified. And I thought they were wrong. And mm-hmm. yet, they thought I wasn't qualified <laughs> because I didn't mm-hmm. have a degree. Like, I didn't have the right major. So I majored in history. I didn't major in English. Yeah. I didn't. I graduated with a degree in history. I went to law school but they thought I wasn't qualified. I think they may disagree now, but there are moments when people had no problem saying, mm. you're not qualified. Yeah. I've written books in which they were completely rejected. Like my first mm-hmm. novel was rejected by everybody. <laughs> mm. And it really hurt my feelings. So, and how did I overcome it? I really believe in what I do. I believe in what I have to yeah. say. I've also, I'm very good at managing expectations. I wasn't expecting mm. great success. Like, mm-hmm. I was expecting that I finished my work, that I publish, and that I would have honored my wish. I think that's something mm-hmm. quite powerful to say, I honor my wish. Yeah. That's different than saying, I expect success. <laughs> because yeah. success is yeah. a very, very tricky definition depending upon who. I mean, there are people I'm sure who would think that I'm not successful today, that whatever I've done mm-hmm. right now is not enough. And they may be right according to their terms. But this is what I will say about that person and people like that. It'll be very hard for them to create things because that voice in their head is so forbidding. So before we go out and start criticizing other people's work, I want you to just realize that it's, it's really dangerous. And I say this to my students too, the ones who are very, very smart. I always think, okay, mm-hmm. I want you to separate the criticism from the attempt the other person made. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. you can point out the things that aren't working, but also teach Mm -hmm. yourself to notice the things that are working because Mm -hmm. your inner creative person needs that kindness and that gentleness. That's great advice. What is one thing you wish you knew when you first started writing? I think that in a way, if I had known how difficult it was, maybe it would have been the worst possible thing. So... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny whenever people ask me, like I, I have, I do readings and I'll have parents come up to me and say, my daughter really wants to be a writer. My son really wants Mm -hmm. to be a writer. What do you think? And I say, well, do they like to read? And if they don't like to read, then I'd say, well, they really should do something else. If you want to become famous, being a writer is like the worst kind of fame. It's Mm -hmm. not really fame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) If you really want to make money, like writing is probably not the way to go. Right. But if you really like to read and want to be in that world of readers forever, then being a writer mm-hmm. is a very natural thing. So what should I have known when I was younger? I think I probably should have known mm-hmm. that what I wanted was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing mm-hmm. because I really wanted to write something beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And here's another one. Why is telling stories from the AAPI perspective important? To have an AAPI perspective is one very central thing for me personally. Like, I can't walk outside this room and just be Minjin without the Lee. Hmm. So there's a real temptation for people. Like, I hear this all the time from writers of color saying, I'm not a writer of color, I'm just a writer. And I think, you're deluded. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I really feel that because I'm thinking I can't leave the house with just my last name, Lee, and not include Minjin either. It's like Mm -hmm. there are so many different aspects of who I am. And what I'm really trying to say to that question is 
please include the totality of who you are in your work. So in the sense that my gender, my idea of being a woman informs my work. Mm -hmm. I have very strong opinions (laughs) about being a woman and it's in all of my work. I don't leave that because it's inconvenient to me. For example, I grew up in the church, so I have opinions about religion that are very informed by my being raised in the church all my life. And it's not always (laughs) pro-church. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And again, I can't leave that off my desk. Mm -hmm. So the AAPI perspective is one perspective that's very important to me. It may not be to others, but I think that it's important to me. And therefore, my work does really reflect who I am and what I believe. Mm, Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Linda, I think we have just a couple of wrap-up questions, and we're almost at the end already. I can't believe it. (laughs) It just flew by. If we can, I I know that we we do have a couple more questions. Maybe if we could ask you, and, and maybe they're more in follow up to you know some of what you talked about being Asian, Asian American. I think this is just more the stat, you know, the the state of being Asian. You know, oftentimes failure is just not an option in our communities. We hear it a lot, but I think there's I think there's something to be said about experiencing failure. And you talked about, you know, some of the humiliations early in your career that you had to go to through to get to where you are. Can you speak about, you know, what would you say are some of the lessons learned? What are some of the the kind of silver linings from some of the humiliations or failures that you experienced that others can also take away and perhaps find heart and inspiration in? One of the things that I want to focus on about this idea of failure and humiliation is that it relates very strongly to the human need for status, Mm -hmm. right? So when I think about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is pretty basic for the primer of psychology 101, you know, M-A-S-L-O-W for those of you who aren't familiar, Mm -hmm. it's often represented in the sort of pyramid structure where at the very base of our hierarchy of human motivations and needs, we need to survive and then we need to have safety above that. And above that you have, I think, acceptance. And above that you have esteem. And then above that you have self-actualization. And I say that because when we say this idea of is failure an option, it sort of belies the fact that failure is all around us. Every one of us has experienced failure. If not regularly. (laughs) And then did it kill us? No. So when you watch a little baby and they're trying to hold their head up and they're trying to drink out of a cup, they're not going to get it right at the first try. So even at that little stage of something that may seem completely not that important, if you have a healthy baby who can't eventually drink out of a cup, then I want to be thoughtful about the fact that we have to instill this willingness to be foolish or to not get it at the right try. Mm -hmm. I see this happening very often with very smart children. Mm -hmm. They don't like Mm -hmm. to be bad at anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this goes cross-culturally. And I always say, it's not that you're bad at it. It's that you're unfamiliar with it. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of go, oh, okay. (laughs) It's like, So if you are not a native Russian speaker, you can't expect to be good at Russian right away. Yes, it's going to feel like you're bad at it, in air quotes. But what you really mean to say is that you just don't know it yet, but you can. So, Mm -hmm. and I try very hard to encourage people to be, who are terrified of 
looking stupid in front of others. Again, esteem and status, mm-hmm. right? So for those of us who come from shame-based cultures, it's so mortifying to think yeah. that we could fail publicly. Yeah. I, t- I talk a lot about my failures. Like, For example, I failed the New York State bar exam. Mm. And when I failed the bar exam the first time, I passed the second, but I did fail the first time. It's a very funny story because in 1993... When I took the exam, when you pass, your name is published back then. I don't know what it is now in the New York Law Journal. And back then you got the actual physical newspaper and you would open it and you would either see your name or not. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which means that everybody in your law firm or in your law organization, wherever you work, if you you are fortunate to have a job, would know like, wait a second, I don't see Min Jin Lee in there. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an example in which I lost face. <laughs> I lost esteem in front of all of my colleagues. I did not die. <laughs> I did not die. And, right. and I say that because it's important to remember, it's not yeah. going to kill you. It is absolutely embarrassing. I was mortified and ashamed. And I did buckle down and study the next time. <laughs> And also, I learned a lot about the people who love me no matter what. Mm. I mean, it's not like I had thousands of people who really said, oh, Minjin's going to be okay okay, that you failed the bar exam. But I did have one or two people who hadn't failed the bar who were profoundly compassionate and kind to me and gave me Mm. good strategies on how to study the next time. And again, that was a wonderful experience for me to know that, oh, it's not going to kill you. People who did try got get it on the first time could be very kind and good, and that I did eventually pass. So all told, I probably learned more from that experience and the other things in which I got it right away. I, but mm. I don't really tend to get things right away. <laughs> <laughs> like, things tend to take me a little longer, but it's really okay. Uh, well, I think it's going to be awesome, and and I know that you're also I think finishing up your third book, I think, right? I am. I'm finishing up. I'm, I'm, I'm working. Well, I, 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 it's so kind of you to say finishing up. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on my third book right now, my third novel called American Hogwan. And it's, it's very tough. It's a very tough book to write because it's very controversial. So I have to tell myself that it's fine, that I have to tell the truth. Do you want to give a little plug for it? Oh, I don't even know how to give a point for it. There isn't an Asian American who's not thinking about this issue of education. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write this trilogy called The Koreans. And my first book was about Koreans in New York in the latter part of the 20th century. My second book is about Koreans in Japan throughout the 20th century and the end of the 19th century. And then I wanted to write a book about what's the most important value for Koreans in the Mm. world. And from my research, it was just that people have very strong opinions about education. So I'm writing a book called American Hagwon, and a Hagwon is a tutoring center. So in Japan, they'd be called jukus, like cram schools, and in Korean, it's Hagwon. In America, it's any private tutoring company. So for example, like Stanley Kaplan, Princeton Review, Mm. The famous young Mm -hmm. one is Kumon, which is, again, Mm -hmm. an export from Japan to the United States. And then you have these individual tiny academies that are run 
throughout the country. But they have these hagwons everywhere around the world. Wherever you see Koreans, you will see churches and hagwons. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm writing about this one particular hagwon. Well, we are looking forward to reading about that too. And I certainly understand what you're saying about education is something that seems to cut across so many different Asian cultures and the importance of it too. So, yeah. So thank you so much for your interest in it. There are three words that come to mind and they all start with H for some reason. (laughs) It's thank you for, thank you for your humility, your humor and your honesty. (laughs) throughout wow. this. It's the 3H club. <laughs> it's the 3H club. Yes, we're part of the 3H club. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> no, it was, and now I'm honored, which is the fourth age. <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here and our listeners do too. And we're super excited that you are really capping off this great season um, that we've been able to hold through the Leap podcast. So thank you again for being here. We appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate each of you and also the important work of showing up fully in who you are every day, wherever you are in every organization. I think that things will get better when we really show up for ourselves and for our families. So thank you. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining Jan and I for the season three episode of the Leap Podcast. Stay connected with Leap by joining Leap's mailing list at leap.org and follow us on Leap's social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap. Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.